morning, Missio. Scripture today is from Acts 1, 2 through 11, and then Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4. Until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, when he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Amen. Well, again, welcome everybody. It's so good to have you. Um, today is what is referred to in the church calendar as Pentecost Sunday. And Pentecost Sunday is the day that we remember the story that Sandy just read for us, the day the Spirit descends upon the early church and the church is born in that moment. And during the season of Pentecost, during these like 40 days that we remember this moment, we are going to be doing a series called The Forgotten God, exploring and focusing very specifically on the person of the Holy Spirit, using this moment to explore who is the Holy Spirit, what is the Holy Spirit up to, what does it look like to read the stories about this person named the Holy Spirit. And I'm really excited for this series but I'm also a little bit nervous to talk about the Holy Spirit. And I, I think there's a lot of reasons to be nervous about talking about the Holy Spirit. But I think if we're honest, at least if I'm honest, sometimes talking about the Holy Spirit can get a little weird. Can we just be honest about that? I just feel like if you've been in a Christian tradition, you've been in a Christian church, language about the Spirit can lead us into places that are a little strange, that are a little weird. And part of the issue is simply that the Bible writers never provide us 
a clean, systematic definition of the Spirit. There's never a moment where we're reading the Bible and the Apostle Paul is like, the Spirit is like A and is like B, and based upon these principles and these ideas, we can concur these other like logical connections between the Spirit. We never get any systematic definitions. Instead, what we most often get about the Spirit is descriptions and stories. And they're beautiful descriptions, and they are beautiful stories. But if you read those descriptions and those stories, they also lead us to so many questions. Like, for example, the primary words used to describe the Spirit are the words pneuma in the Greek and ruah in the Hebrew. And those words mean wind and breath. And as soon as you describe someone as wind or breath, you just know that you're in some kind of strange grammar. We are looking for language, and we're not finding it very easily. This is like color without hue. I don't know. And even the names that we give to spirit are strange descriptors, not proper nouns. The phrase Holy Spirit is a descriptor of the Spirit. In my personal favorite, if you grew up Pentecostal, Holy Ghost, which I feel like we should really bring back because it's kind of spooky and fun, Holy Ghost. But again, that is a descriptor more than it feels like a proper name. When we talk about God the Father, we can go to Father, or we can go to the Old Testament names like Yahweh or Elohim, or even the phrase God feels somewhat more concrete than Holy Spirit and Jesus is the easiest of all. Jesus has a name. I don't understand why Spirit never got a name like Sheila or Oliver or something. Like just something to really get our hands around so we knew how to address Spirit. But instead we get a description. Holy Spirit. Holy Ghost. Holy Wind. And every time the Spirit's activity is described, again, we find ourselves in strange territory, almost like we're telling ghost stories. The Spirit is often said to alight on people, or land on people, or anoint people. And again, that is a beautiful description and a beautiful image, but it is not very concrete. What does it mean that Spirit lands? What does it mean that breath is on me? It can be a beautiful, evocative image, or it could just be that God talks way too close and we feel his breathy hellos. What does it mean to talk about spirit when the language is so abstract and the ideas are so distant and the grammar so hard to get our minds around? I think that's probably part of the reason that when we talk about spirit, and if you grow up in a church or you were to go find some books about spirit, I think this language and this grammar issue and this abstraction means that you get lots of understandings of the Spirit that seem different from one another. If you were going to go pick up five different books about the Spirit, there's a good chance you would find five pretty different understandings of the Spirit. From the Spirit is alive and active in the same kinds of ways as the Spirit was working in the book of Acts to know the Spirit is fundamentally doing something different today. And it's 100% like a different orientation than we saw in the lives of the Apostles. And I don't know that there's many subjects in Christian theology in which we get such different and diverse understandings of someone so central to the story. We're not talking about a sub-character, even though that's sometimes how it comes out to be. We are talking about God, and yet, because we are in a world that is hard to describe, we get lots of descriptions and definitions. So it makes it hard to talk about spirit. 
So I think that's one part that makes this conversation difficult. I think the other thing, though, and maybe the more important thing, is that what makes talking about spirit hard is that I don't know we really know what to do with spirit. Both like theologically and practically. I think we may have some good ideas about spirit. We may have learned some things about the spirit. We may talk about the spirit. But I don't know that we know where or how the spirit fits into our lives. And I think the biggest issue is that we don't have much of an imagination for spirit. What I mean by that is that many of us believe good and right things about spirit. We might have a good, so to say, pneumatology, a spirit theology. And we have those ideas and those axioms and those beliefs in our head, but there's like something in us that is missing the impulse to live into spirit, that's missing the spirit instinct within us. So we have an idea, but not a lived reality. I was kind of thinking about it like this. It's like we have watched a game of baseball— We know the rules of baseball, but we've not actually ever swung a bat. And we've never lifted our mitt to catch a fly ball. And so those feelings, those instincts, those impulses, that muscle memory is not present within our bodies. I know the rules of the game. I practically know what swinging a bat is. I understand the idea of catching a ball, but if you put me on the field, my hand does not naturally raise to catch a ball. It goes like this. (laughs) As a theater kid. (laughs) Everybody's like, we know. So I think we lack more than anything else the muscle memory to reach out and catch the ball. We have ideas about spirit, but we have forgot or never learned what it looks like for the spirit to make its way into our bodies and our lives. And so throughout this series, what we're hoping to do is, yes, in some ways remember spirit, like to talk about spirit, to develop some good theology around spirit, to explore spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament, to get our understanding correct. But my biggest prayer throughout this whole series, the next couple of weeks, is that as we talk about spirit, our imaginations would become more saturated in spirit. That's less concrete. That's less uh, objectionable. I don't know how to measure whether that happens. But my hope is that we would get on the field, so to say, and maybe tentatively, what's up, little buddy? (laughs) He's like, I'm going to go for it. (laughs) Someday, buddy, your legs will be longer and you'll be able to make it. Not yet, though. My hope, more than anything else, is that we would learn to make our way onto the field and begin to just develop the instincts or the impulses to reach for the Spirit. That it would not simply be intellectual ideas we're processing, but a bodied response to what God is doing around us. And so today, to start us off, what I want to do, and I think the best way to do this is simply to tell some stories about the Spirit in the Bible. I've tentatively called this sermon Holy Ghost Stories because I think that's very funny. (laughs) We're going to tell some Holy Ghost stories together. So everybody, let's gather at this campfire and talk about the Spirit. Now the very first story that we're going to tell comes in Acts chapter 2. It's the text that Sandy read for us this morning. And this is maybe the most famous of all 
spirit story. It's the one that we celebrate on Pentecost. It's the one we tell the most. It motivates so much life together. And here's how the text reads. Acts 2, verse 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they, the disciples and the followers of Jesus, were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So it's this amazing moment in which the Spirit falls on the disciples in the upper room. And you probably know what comes next. The disciples head into the streets. People begin to hear the gospel proclaimed in their native languages. And 3,000 people are saved. But I want to pause here in verse 4 before we get to the streets moment of verse 5. Because before the disciples head into the streets to begin proclaiming the gospel in languages they do not understand, they are in the upper room where the Spirit gives them other languages to speak one to another. And I think if we just pause there and think about that moment for a second, it is amazing, but it would also be so startling. Startling because uh, a few years of high school Spanish does not prepare you for random fluency. So the Spirit just came on me and I began to speak a fluent language. I would think something broke in me, not that something powerful had happened. But I think even more startling this moment would be because I don't think the disciples want to speak other languages. And I don't think the disciples like what the implication of them speaking other languages besides Hebrew might mean for the kingdom of God and the work of spirit. And here's what I mean by that. The disciples are very familiar with the idea of spirit. Jesus has been talking about spirit all throughout his ministry. He has been preparing the disciples for the spirit. And in Acts 1, the ascension moment before Pentecost that Sandy also read for us, Jesus tells the disciples that the Spirit is going to come and they are to wait in Jerusalem for that moment. And so the disciples ask this question. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So they hear that the Spirit is coming. They hear that God is about to clothe them with power from on high. And their immediate impulse is to say, oh, that means the kingdom, this good news thing that God is doing, this work that God is accomplishing must be arriving, and they're right to ask that question. Because often when Jesus talks about the Spirit, he does so connected to the kingdom. In Luke 11, when Jesus records the famous Lord's Prayer, in that prayer, he says, pray for the kingdom, and then right after he said, and God will give you the Spirit. So he connects Spirit and kingdom there. And in Luke 4, verse 18, When Jesus is announcing his ministry, he does so in very spirit and kingdom kind of language. Jesus gathers a bunch of people in a synagogue. He opens this Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and he says this thing. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, so that the oppressed, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is kingdom language. 
It's God restoring the world language. It's taking that Israel idea and exploding it and making it even bigger. And the scholar Amos Young helps us understand how this would have sounded to the disciples and the early listeners. Amos Young says this, the declaration of the year of the Lord's favor here, as it does in the prophet Isaiah, refers to the year of Jubilee and Torah. One that involved the restoration of the land, to families, freedom from servanthood. And when Jesus declares this all about himself, it indicates Jesus' concrete concerns for the flourishing of embodied human beings in real, social, historical, economic, and political communities. Now, the reason I tell you this is because when the disciples hear about spirit, this is what they're thinking. The kingdom will be restored. That Messiah, Jesus, King, is going to do the work that he's been talking about doing for a long time. A work that is concerned with bodies and communities and societies and economies. That it will be tangible and real. And so as they enter into Jerusalem to wait for the spirit, the disciples do so with great hope and expectation, hoping that God is going to do something that delivers them from the plight of Roman occupation, hoping that God delivers them from poverty. But it is a hope for Israel alone. The disciples ask in Acts 1-6, Lord, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom to us, to this nation, to this people? The disciples do not ask if God is going to restore the kingdom to the world. They do not ask if the kingdom will be restored to all peoples. They do not ask if the kingdom will include Gentiles. They ask, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to us? This social, physical, embodied place, will you deliver it to me? And I think that makes Pentecost a very startling moment. Because if you believe the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel, at least that's what I think. I think if I was in that moment, and I was in that room, and I believed the kingdom was going to be restored to Israel, then my expectation would be that everyone outside the room would begin to speak Hebrew. The language of the Israelite kingdom. But instead, everyone in the room speaks languages of diverse and different people groups. They stop speaking the language of Israel. They stop speaking the language of their ancestry. And here's what the text says, verse 7 and 10. Utterly amazed, the communities around them asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? Shouldn't they be speaking their own language? How then has each of us heard them in our native languages? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, and even Rome. Oh, that's fascinating. So instead of speaking the language of the kingdom you hope is restored, all of a sudden the disciples begin to speak the languages of the kingdoms outside, even the language of the kingdom that oppresses them. Well, that would be a startling moment. That would be startling to the expectations and the assumptions the disciples bring to Jesus' work. That would be startling and unexpected to the biases and limitations and even the hopes that the disciples bring to this moment. Instead of speaking their own Hebrew language that would represent the restoration of their own kingdom, the first act of spirit 
is to disrupt their expectations, their understandings, and witness to them through the kingdoms at the end of the earth. Jesus told the disciples before the Spirit comes that the disciples would become witnesses to the ends of the earth. This moment confirms that, that they're going to speak languages at the ends of the world, but it is interesting that before they go to the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth come to them and speak to them through the presence of the Spirit. This moment is bigger and better than the disciples ever could have imagined, but it is for sure challenging. And in this moment, what we see is the Spirit arrives in the lives of the disciples, and the thing the Spirit does is witness to them. Before they can become witnesses to the ends of the earth, the Spirit shows up and witnesses to them. The Spirit arrives to witness to the kingdom in their lives, meets them in the upper room, and challenges the limitations, the boundaries, the barriers, and the sin that they hold that stops them from seeing all the things that God is doing. And this is what Jesus told us the Spirit would do. In John 14, verse 25, Jesus is talking about the Spirit, and this is what he says, All this I've spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. The Spirit will continue to teach you something and remind you of everything I have said. In this moment, we see the Spirit teaching the disciples, reminding them of all things that Jesus said in an unexpected and startling way. And for a moment, the disciples seem to get it because it spreads like the tongues of fire that we see in the beginning. They leave the upper room, head into the streets, and that's the moment that once they've been witnessed to by the thing the Spirit is doing, they head out and begin to witness to what God is doing, and 3,000 people are converted and become followers of Jesus. But it is not the last time the disciples will have to have an encounter with the Spirit to challenge their understanding. And it leads to the next story. In Acts chapter 10, we come to a moment that is approximately seven years after Pentecost. Sometimes we read Acts like concurrent moments. There's actually a lot of time being told in this book. In Acts 10, just a few chapters later, comes seven years after Pentecost. And we find the apostle Peter praying on a roof. And it says this in verse 10. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. I've never resonated more with Peter in in this moment. I've experienced my fair share of hangry trances. And in this trance, this is what he sees. It says, He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then Peter heard a voice that said, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Peter replied, Surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. So the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now Peter receives this vision three times before the truth of it begins to soak into him. And while he's pondering the version, in verse 19, it says, The Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs, and do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. When Peter goes downstairs to investigate, he meets three men who have been sent to him by a Roman centurion named Cornelius. 
We've talked a lot about centurions in the last couple of weeks because we've been looking at stories with Jesus interacting with people, but centurions are Roman military commanders. So they're officers in the occupying army, and they lead and police Israel. So in every political sense, it's important to understand this, Cornelius is an enemy to Peter, and one that Peter would be afraid of, because not only has he seen Israel conquered by Romans, not only has he seen Israel dominated by Romans, but he also saw Romans kill Jesus. So this is a threatening human being. And Cornelius has sent these men to Peter because he's had his own vision. And so Peter decides to go with him. And he follows the Spirit and these three men, and he comes to Cornelius' house, and a crowd of people has gathered to hear Peter preach. And amazed to see all of these things and all of these Gentiles gathered together, this is what Peter said. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. This moment is fascinating. Peter has a vision. He gets it three times from God. It still doesn't connect with him until all of a sudden he finds himself in the home of his enemy. And as he's there, he's like, oh, oh. I had put barriers and limitations up to what it is that God was doing and Pentecost had begun to challenge those things and Pentecost had begun to unravel those things as I spoke the language of those around me. But now that I find myself in the house of an enemy, I cannot call anything unclean or impure. Peter had not gotten it to begin with. In seven years post-Pentecost, he still can't fully imagine what it is that God is doing. But then Peter says, I now realize, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Peter has an encounter with the Spirit. And in this encounter with the Spirit, he is led into a confrontation with his enemy in which Peter realizes oh, God is doing something so much bigger than I ever imagined. God is doing something so much bigger than the limitations and the barriers and the expectations that I have placed on kingdom. And yes, it was beginning to unravel, but something even bigger is at work. And as Peter has this realization, he preaches the gospel. And the text says the Spirit falls on them. And again, in this moment, I didn't put it in, but other disciples who are with Peter are still amazed that the Spirit falls on the Gentiles. It's like the whole encounter is continuing to press on how they see this moment, beginning to press on what they believe that God can do. It continues to press on who they limit into the kingdom. And because of this moment, Peter says this amazing thing, verse 47, Surely no one can stand in the way of you being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. I love this phrase because just moments before, who is standing in the way? Peter. He had no imagination that the Spirit could include these people too. He had no imagination that the kingdom could be that large. He had no idea what it is that God is doing. And then he has this encounter with the Spirit, and here he says, oh, no one can stand in the way. 
The Spirit meets Peter, leads him to his enemy where he realizes the truth and he gets out of the way and begins to participate in the Spirit's work. And it's a beautiful moment in the story. But again, this is not a moment that is universally accepted in the early church. And it leads to the final Spirit story. As you continue to read the book of Acts, you see the church continue to struggle with this moment and with all the moments that have been like it. The church debates how can Gentiles be included in this community. And the debate sets to center around if Gentiles are included, so non-Jewish believers, if they're included in the church, then we probably should impose on them Torah, the law of Moses, which is an uncomfortable conversation because a group of Jewish believers are like, hey dudes, snippy snippy. (laughs) To impose this law on them and all of the ways of life that come with it and all of the restrictions that come with it. And another group like Peter and Paul are like, hold on a second, if they're participating in the Spirit, if they're having these encounters, like is this the right way to handle Torah and the Old Testament law? Is that how this should be worked out? And this debate rages in nine years after Cornelius. So we've got, ten, we've got years after Pentecost, now we've got nine years after Cornelius, 15 years after Pentecost, a council gathers together in Jerusalem to debate the issue. Fifteen years after Pentecost, they come together to debate what does it mean for the church to include non-Jewish believers. And in the story of Acts 15, it's really interesting. Different parties present their opinions and their arguments. Peter tells the story of Cornelius and defends Gentile inclusion. Paul talks about all of these amazing miracles and stories that have been playing out in the lives of Gentile believers. The other side defends their case based upon Old Testament law and history and theology. And then James, who is the leader of the early church in Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus, he gets up and he says this, verse 19, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles to turn to God. Instead, let's do this. Let's write them a letter, tell them to abstain from some foods, to be sexually moral, and to not eat meat that has been strangled by animals, which is all these like cultic ideas and rituals in the ancient world. And so we're going to write them a letter with some instructions. And then they record the letter. And this is what I want to read for you because I think it is so funny. A few verses down, we get this letter in verse 29. This comes in the middle of the letter. After some introductions, we get this moment. Verse 29. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with the following requirements, which is the law of Moses. It seemed good to us not to impose Torah on you. I don't know how this sounds to you, but it just feels so arbitrary to me when I read this, like a bunch of dudes in a boardroom that are like, I don't like it anymore. It seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit. What a strange phrase to use to look at this Jewish law, the Torah, the thing that has led you as a people group, and to be like, meh. That's the NIV. I looked it up in some other translations because I feel like seemed good seems so arbitrary. Other translations have a bit different language. The CEB, uh, Common English Bible, says the Spirit led us, which is maybe a little more authoritative, puts more weight on what the Spirit is doing. 
But the Greek word here for seemed good is the word dokeo. And you can translate it like seemed good. You can translate it suppose or presume. Or my favorite way to translate this word, and is often used this way throughout the text, is imagine. Imagine. Which changed this moment to it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, and we imagined in the Holy Spirit. Because of the Holy Spirit, we were able to see something so much bigger than we were able to see before. Because of the work of the Spirit, we have a new imagination for what God is doing. We have this moment that comes 15 years after Pentecost. And it's 15 years of the Spirit leading the Spirit, guiding the Spirit, teaching the church. And in all of those moments from Cornelius to Pentecost and all the stories that we did not have time to look at today, we see the Spirit helping the disciples imagine Jesus' kingdom. To see it as bigger and better than they could have ever imagined on their own. And as we look at their lives, they could not have gotten there without the Spirit's direct intervention. They needed these startling encounters to understand that they cannot show favoritism, that they cannot operate on the same structures or ideas of the world. They needed these encounters with the Spirit to imagine what God was up to. They needed Pentecost and Cornelius and so many other moments. And again, Jesus told us that this is what the Spirit is here to do. In John 16, verse 15, Jesus tells his disciples, the Spirit of truth will guide you in all truth. Like a trail guide or a teacher, the Spirit leads the disciples, guides them into all truth. The Spirit presses on those barriers of their imagination, unravels those anxieties, calls out those limitations so they can see more of what God is trying to accomplish in the world around them, so they can see what God is trying to accomplish in them so that they might get out of the way and instead join in the work the Spirit is doing. Missio, we need spirit-saturated imaginations because without the spirit, we have no imagination for what God is doing. We are so limited. Paul says that we need to have our minds renewed because we operate out of the pattern of this world. We have a locked, limited understanding of what God is doing, and we will continue to try to snuff it out with our own expectations, our own boundaries, our own sinful ways of operating instead of allowing it to be all that God is trying to make it. We need spirit-saturated imaginations because without the spirit, we have no imagination for what God is doing. And this is true as we see the kingdom emerge outside of us, like in the stories that we have read today. But in the weeks to come, we'll look at the spirit as the agent who communicates to us that we are adopted. We'll talk about the Spirit as the one who reinforces in our bodies that we are loved, as Paul says. The Spirit who communicates to the very deepest parts of us. And all of this communicates the same thing, that if we don't have the Spirit, we do not know that we are loved as much as we are. If we don't have the Spirit, we don't know that we are invited as much as we are. God's like, you need the Spirit to communicate truth in you, to get it so deep in you that you begin to imagine the world and your own life differently. 
In every iteration and in every story, we need the Spirit pressing into us the truths of God's work, helping us see and believe so that we might live with and by the Spirit. So this is what the Spirit arrived on Pentecost to do, to invite us into so much more. Before we get to the moment of Pentecost, in the text that we read this morning from Acts 1, it's the ascension story. And in that story, Jesus tells the disciples that he is going to send them the Spirit, and that they're supposed to wait into Jerusalem until the Spirit arrives. And then we get this very funny moment of Jesus ascending into heaven, and the disciples are just like waiting. And then it says a cloud hides him, so I don't know what Jesus is doing in that moment, if it's like he like jumped behind a car until they walked away. But he says he, descend, he ascends into heaven, and the disciples are there, and the text says when he was going away, they just stared towards heaven. Jesus told them that they would be clothed with power, but they stand there like kids who have just been dropped off at summer camp, watching their parent drive away, wondering what comes next. And I love that image because I think for most of us, that is how we live the Christian life. We are waiting on the sky for Jesus to do something like kids who have just been dropped off at summer camp when the Spirit has already descended. It is already around us, beckoning us into more. Monsieur, that is the hope, that is the prayer, and that is the invitation of Pentecost. The Spirit has arrived. And though we may be waiting on the sky, the Spirit is around us, calling us and inviting us into more. And it will be a wild ride as we have seen through the book of Acts and as we will continue to explore. Following the Spirit will press us outside of control. But as we've also seen, it's outside of control that all that good stuff begins to happen. We find new languages and meet our enemies and imagine more than we could have before. So, Monsieur, in a moment, what we're going to do is we're going to gather at this table, the same way that we do every single week. And the reason that we do this every single week is because as we do, we remember Jesus' kingdom. This thing that we have such a terrible time imagining, we gather at this place to help us see it, to help us live it, to help us experience it. We'll gather and we'll break the bread to remember that in Jesus' broken body we were made whole and invited in. As we take the cup, we'll remember that in his sacrifice the kingdoms of this world have come undone and a new one has come into existence. When the ancient church would gather at this table, many churches still continue to do this practice, they would pray a prayer of presence asking the Spirit to meet them in the moment as they gathered at the table. Asking that they would be attentive to the Spirit who promised to meet them in that moment. And so before we come to this table, I'm going to offer my own prayer of presence over us as a community. And then what I would invite you to do, just in light of the sermon and in light of the stories that we have told today, that as you come to this table, would you pray your own prayer of presence? asking the Spirit to be with you, and maybe more than anything else, asking that you would be attentive 
to the beckoning invitation of the Spirit. So, Missy, let me pray for you, and then we'll gather at the table together. Spirit, we believe that you are here with us, around us, and in us. But we need you in this moment to fall again. We need you to meet us in new ways, lead us into strange encounters, confront our sin, our limitation, our barriers, confront the ways that we limit the kingdom of you and guide us into truth bigger than we imagine. Spirit, we believe you are here, but help our unbelief. Spirit, fall on us again. Meet us at this table. Take these simple gestures, this bread and this wine, and make it so much more. And in the same way, Spirit, would you take our bodies and our collective body and make it so much more? More than we can imagine. But not more than you can. In your name, Spirit, we pray. Amen.